Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at CGI Burlington. Thanks very much, Brother Dylan. And good afternoon, brethren. It's great to be back. At the beginning of the week, I was in Florida. Had to head down to Broward County and sort out the vote recount. <laughs> I was actually doing some work down there. It was nice and warm, but... Uh, I'd rather be here in the cold with all of you. It's nice to be home. I want to begin, brethren, in Mark chapter 7. If you could turn there. Mark chapter 7. And I want to start here because so many people see Jesus as this all-inclusive individual. Jesus, who just came to save everybody, loves everybody. And in fact, I shared something with uh, Pastor Murray yesterday where the Democrats were condemning uh, President Trump and his policy on immigration and saying that Jesus is on their side. And they were quoting Matthew 25, that as long as you take in the poor and the hungry, if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto Christ. And of course, they don't understand the scripture. Christ was very clear that if you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Not just any poor person, any hungry person, any person in prison. But here I think in Mark 7, this exclusivity that Christ had in his perspective is really highlighted here in Mark 7 and beginning in verse 24. It says, And from there he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. So he was very famous, and people were seeking him out. And in verse 25, For a certain woman, whose young daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell at his feet. So she is uh, in quite a desperate situation with this unclean spirit in her daughter. And the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation. So she's a Gentile. And she begged him, that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled. For it is not appropriate to take the children's bread and cast it unto the dogs. This was Jesus Christ's perspective, that there were children and there were dogs. And this woman, not being of the house of Israel, in his view was a dog. I think most people would be terribly offended by this. But this is the Lord. So he says, just, I'm sorry that, you know, you're in a terrible situation. Your daughter is demon-possessed. I could only imagine how horrible that is. Oh, well, you're not of the house of Israel. And it's not, I came, and it's not appropriate for me to give what I came to give to Israel, to give it to dogs. And she answered and said, how dare you? Call me a dog. No. She answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord. Yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. I know my place. I'm a dog, and the children eat at the table, and crumbs fall from the table onto the ground, and I wonder if I could have some of those crumbs. And he said unto her, For this saying, for, for your acknowledgement of the special position of Israel and your acknowledgement that you're a dog, 
for this saying, go your way. The devil is gone out of your daughter. In other words, if she did not acknowledge the privileged position of the house of Israel, the devil would stay in her daughter and he would not help her. But because she acknowledged this privileged position, he then went ahead. It's an exception, but he took this exception and he expelled the devil out of the daughter. And when she came to her house, she found the devil gone out and her daughter laid upon the bed. What is this? Why was Jesus so exclusive to the point where it almost sounds insulting and, 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 and callous, like he doesn't care? I want to explore that today. Specifically, I want to answer the question, what is God's purpose through the Jews? Why has he selected the Jews and, and specifically the place Jerusalem? And then what does God's focus on the Jews mean to us in the church? So God clearly has this focus on, on, the, Jew, on the tribe of Judah specifically. Why? And what does that mean to us in the church? Let's go to John 4 where Landon was reading earlier. And we're going to do a lot of reading of the Bible today. So if you have questions, jot them down and we'll talk in the after-sermon discussion. But we need to get this. It's a crazy world. And we need, to, we need to see what's happening in this world. As the world is changing, how is God's plan unfolding? Here in John 4, beginning in verse 5, it says, Then comes he to a city of Samaria. So he's coming now into Samaria, and he comes to this city in Samaria, which is called Sychar. It's near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And if you just hold your place here and go to Genesis 48. In verse 21 of Genesis 48, he says, And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you. And bring you again into the land of your fathers. So Genesis 48. And then in verse 22, he says, Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brethren, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. So the Samaritans understood this, and therefore this was holy land to them. That Israel carved out this land specifically for Joseph, and they thought that it was therefore holy, and this is this this is where they dwelt. Continuing John four, verse six. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus at the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There comes a woman of Samaria to draw water. So we just saw his interaction with the Syrophoenician woman and her coping with her daughter being demon-possessed and Christ having nothing to do with her. But then because she acknowledged that she's a dog and was just hoping for crumbs off the table, therefore he helped her. Now he comes to this woman of Samaria, or this woman of Samaria comes to him and she comes to draw water. And let's see how he interacts with her. 
Jesus, so she's not a Jew, just as the other woman was not a Jew. Jesus said unto her, Give me drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then says the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? So I'm a woman, number one, and number two, I'm of Samaria. How is it that you're asking me? For the Jews have zero dealings with the Samaritans. So there is this conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews, and just a little bit of history. When the kingdom split, ten tribes went north, three of the tribes were south, and Jeroboam in that split was nervous about them going back to Jerusalem and coming back under the house of Judah, so he established his own place of worship in the north and established his own religion in the north. So they still worshipped Yahweh, but it was a corrupted religion. God then punished them through the hand of Assyria, scattered them, and other the Assyrian policy, not only did they scatter them, but they brought in others into the land. So the people of Israel that remained in the land were a mixed breed, and the Jews rejected them. They, had a mix, they were a mixed breed, and they had a false religion, or a mixed religion. So the Jews had nothing to do with them. And when the Jews were taken off to Babylon, when they came back to build the temple, they wanted the Samaritans to have nothing to do with the rebuilding. Jesus answered and said unto her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says to you, Give me to drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. So the Syrophoenician woman, whose daughter was demon-possessed, he wanted nothing to do with her. But this woman, he's saying, hey, if you had asked me, I would have given you this gift of life. The woman, so he's acknowledging that she's of the house of Israel. The woman says unto him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From where then have you that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? So she's an Israelite, and she's acknowledging she, her father, Israel, and she's asking, are you greater than Israel, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. The woman says unto him, Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come here to draw. Jesus said unto her, Go call your husband, and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. So she's living in a sinful situation. Again, it's a mixed up religion. Jesus said unto her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And, of course, we know that unless it's legitimate, she's living in adultery, even if she claims to be married. And he whom you now have is not your husband. In that said you truly. The woman says unto him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. So these were, again, Israelites, but they were mixed up, and this is Jeroboam's religion. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say... That in Jerusalem, that is the Jews say, 
in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So there's this conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews as to where they should worship. And just hold your place here and go to Deuteronomy 11 to see where the rationale for worshiping in this mountain is. We'll find it here in Deuteronomy 11. And in verse 26 of Deuteronomy 11, Moses writes, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day, to go after other gods which you have not known. And it shall come to pass, verse 29, when the Lord your God has brought you in unto the land where you go to possess it, that you shall put the blessing upon Mount Gerizim and the curse upon Mount Ebal. So there were these two mountains, and one set of Israelites were on one side, Mount Gerizim, and the other set were on the other side, and they pronounced the blessing from Mount Gerizim and the curse from Mount Ebal. So this is why they this is their justification for worshiping on Mount Gerizim. So who is the you know who who has the legitimate religion is really the conflict. It would be like today with the Muslims and the Jews where the, the Muslims are claiming that Abraham built Mecca and Mecca is the proper place to worship and the Jews are saying no, Jerusalem is the proper place to worship. So who has the true religion? Same thing here. So is it should we be worshiping at Mount Gerizim in Samaria? Or should we be worshipping in Jerusalem? So back to John 4. John 4, verse 21. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You don't know what you're doing, is what he says. You worship You know not what. We know, that's the Jews, what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. Salvation is not this generic, feel-good, mankind needs to be saved. Christ is very specific. It's of the Jews. And you saw with his interaction with the Syrophoenician woman, he wanted nothing to do with her. And yet with this woman of Samaria, he was willing to entertain her because she was a child of Israel. So he's saying, even though she's a child of Israel, she has no idea. You have no clue. Because salvation is of the Jews. They had corrupted their religion. And Christ is telling it. Now the the Greek of salvation is of the Jews is soteria ekton yodion. Estin, that is salvation, really the better translation is, salvation comes out of the Jews. Salvation comes out of the Jews. What does that mean? Let's unpack it. What did Christ, what was Christ telling this woman? Let's go to Matthew 13. What does this mean? And what is this special place that the Jews have in God's plan? Matthew 13 and verse 1. 
The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him. So very popular, big following, lots of people gathered unto him at the seaside. So that he went into a ship and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. So he was the center of attention. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why do you speak to them in parables? So who's the them? These are Jews. He's going through the cities of Judah. And he's speaking to these Jews in parables. He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. For whoever has, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whoever does not have, from him shall be taken away even what he has. So let's understand what's happening here. Christ is preaching the gospel. He's healing. And there's this huge crowd that's following him, looking for healing, looking for blessings from him, and also intrigued by his teaching. And he has called out 12 disciples. And he's teaching these disciples as a rabbi. And then when the multitude gathers to him, he goes to the ship. But when he speaks to this huge crowd, he speaks in code. He doesn't speak plainly. And so the disciples ask him, why are you speaking in code? And he basically answers and says, because it's been given to you to understand, but they're cursed. I'm pronouncing a curse on all of them. And these are Jews. They, they have no access to this information. Only you. So he was separating Jew from Jew. So there's the Jew that has no clue. And there's the true Jew. And Christ did this. He says, therefore, I speak to them in parables. And here's the curse. Because they seeing, see not. And hearing, They hear not, neither do they understand. Why did he do this? Why would he curse his own people and only reveal what he's doing to his disciples? When I was in uh, Amsterdam, I was meeting one client, but I have another client there that I said I'd meet, and they said that I should get the train to Hoofdorp. And I've never been to Hoofdorp. So I went the night before just to check it all out, get my ticket, figure it all out. So they said there's a train at 701 and there's a train at 711. So both either train would get me to Hoofdorp in time. And the 701, I thought I'll get that. It left from track one. So I went the next morning, had breakfast, and then it looked like I would miss the 701. No problem, I'll get the 711. But by the time I got there, got through the gate, got to the where the trains are, it was like 710. So I just asked the guide information, where's track one? He told me where track one was. I ran. I just got on the train, and then the train pulled out. And then I just felt a bit uncomfortable. I just wanted to be sure. So I asked the neighbor beside me, is this going to Hoofdorp? And he said, no, you need to go the other direction. There were two trains that leave at 711. So the 701 train left from track 1 to Hoofdorp, but the 711 train left from track 17. And so here I am in this different language, and I just had no clue what I was doing. And that's like these Jews. They're on the train to oblivion, and they have no idea. And Christ isn't helping them. It's not for them to know. 
let them take this train to oblivion. And Christ is saying, oh, well. But the disciples, he pulls out and he teaches them. And he pronounces a curse on his people. Why? Hold your place here. And let's go to Romans 11. Because he says to his disciples, it's given to you to know the mysteries, but not to them. One of these mysteries is the mystery of Israel. And Paul shows that here in Romans 11. In verse 25, he says, For I would not, brethren, this is not my will, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. So Christ says to you, it's been given to understand the mysteries. Well, you shouldn't be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. In other words, if you don't understand this mystery, you'll become conceited. You'll become arrogant. You'll think this is all about you when it's not. So by understanding this mystery, we, we, we understand our place in the plan of God. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery because there's a danger that if you don't understand this mystery, you'll become conceited. Here's the mystery. That blindness, in part, has happened to Israel. And that's exactly what we saw, where there's this whole multitude that follows Christ, and he separates them. And he says, this part can see, but that part has to remain blind. That blindness, in part, is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So God is working a plan that there's a part of Israel that has to remain blind. While Israel is blind, the fullness of the Gentiles can come in. And so all Israel shall be saved because much of the Israelites are mixed into the Gentiles. They don't know who they are, but God is redeeming them. And so through this process, all Israel shall be saved as it is written there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, he's delivering Israel, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So this is God's plan, that Jacob is sinful, but God is going to turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. So I will take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. So let's be clear, the Jews are enemies of the gospel. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. This is what we have to understand. The Jews hate Christ. The Jews reject Christ. And because they reject Christ, they hate the gospel. So they are enemies of the gospel. And at the same time as they are enemies of the gospel, they are beloved for the Father's sake. The Father loves them. The Father is in covenant love with them. And he's determined to take their godliness, their godlessness away and make them godly people. We have to understand this mystery. He says here, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God is not sorry that he has entered a covenant with these people. And he's not going to repent of it. The covenant is everlasting. So blindness has happened to them in part, but the covenant is everlasting. For God has concluded them all in unbelief. Why? That he might have mercy upon all. So this is a mystery. This is the mystery of Israel, which we have to understand, 
or we'll become conceited and think that God has forgotten Israel. Let's go back to Matthew 13. And I always have to be clear that when I say Israel, unless I state otherwise, I mean the tribes of Israel, all 12 tribes. When I say Judah, this is the three, the house of Judah. That's Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. And Judah, much of Judah today is in the land that's called Israel, which is a country that they named Israel, but that's not the house of Israel. Matthew 13, verse 13 Therefore, I speak to them in parables. Matthew 13, verse 13, Christ is telling us, or telling his disciples, I'm, I'm, I'm not telling them anything because they're cursed. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not. They have no clue, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah which says, by hearing you shall not hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you shall not see, and shall not perceive. So this is when Isaiah was called to ministry, and this was a curse pronounced on these people because of their rebellion. That because of their rebellion, Isaiah would prophesy right under their noses, and they'd have no idea, and the curse would come upon them. For this people's heart, this is why Christ is not sharing with them his teachings. Because this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. This is Christ's assessment of his people. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. I'm I'm confused. Wouldn't it be a good thing? If they understood with their heart and they heard with their ears and they saw with their eyes and they said, oh, yes, you're the Lord and they were converted. Why why wouldn't he want that? Does that make sense? He leaves them in this state where they are condemned. And then he turns to his disciples in verse 16 and says, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I'm telling you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see and haven't seen them. So so these people will never see them. They're cursed. But even prophets and righteous men desire to understand the things that you understand and they didn't. And to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. And then he goes on to explain the parable of the sower and why so few actually produce fruit. So I want to answer this question and make sure we understand why Christ was not interested in having these multitude of Jews, his own people, why he wasn't interested in having them understand his teachings, so that they could re- why, why repentance was inaccessible to them, and yet why at the same time there was a set of Jews that he made salvation accessible to. And because it was accessible to them, all of us have access to this same salvation that he prevented his people from having access to. What does this all mean? So let's just unfold the plan of redemption 
let's begin in Genesis. And let's understand what God is doing and how this plan of redeeming mankind begins with Eve, then it transitions to Abraham, then it transitions to Israel. And Israel becomes the new Eve. And Christ is the second Adam. And this is all about marriage. God is seeking a bride for his son. And that bride is Israel. And so let's see how this unfolds. Genesis 2 and verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat of it, because in the day, the very day that you eat thereof, you will most surely die. And God isn't joking. This is, what we, this is what Adam had to learn. This is what Israel had to learn. This is what all mankind has to learn. We do not joke with God's word. He means what he says. There's, there's not a single word that God has ever spoken that has not performed exactly what he said it would do. This is not the God of abrogation. This is not a God who's trying to figure things out as he goes. And he says something and he says, you know, I changed my mind. It's not going to actually work out that way. So I'm going to uh, let me change my mind on that. Never. It's God. And he prides himself in the power of his word. And our faith is in the power of his word. If his word is unreliable, then we can't trust him. His word is reliable. And this is a reliable word. In the day you eat of this tree, that very day, you'll die. Most surely, not kind of maybe, absolutely. Genesis 3.19, Adam disobeys God, and now he's being sentenced. Verse 19, in the sweat of your face shall you eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust shall you return. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so this is the death sentence on Adam. He's dead. So go and just live out your life now, and you're just going to be buried. So he lost his life that very day. Verse 20. The day that he loses his life, the moment he loses his life, verse 20, Adam changed his wife's name. So his wife was Isha, because she was taken out of Ish. And Adam called Isha's name Eve, or Eva, Eve because she was the mother of all living. So he realizes, I'm dead. I'm gone. From now on, any life, any human being that's going to live is associated with you, is going to come out of you. So Eve is the mother of all living. And God now, if you read earlier the judgment on Satan, God now sets in plan or sets in motion a plan of redemption to save Eve. So God is now instigating a plan to redeem Eve. Eve was deceived. Adam was rebellious. So he's now going to redeem Eve and her offspring. That's what the plan of salvation is all about. In Genesis 17, God now pivots. And this plan of saving Eve will be done through his friend Abraham. So Abraham now becomes the proxy for Eve, for all of mankind. For Genesis 17, verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you, that's Abraham, 
and your seed after you in their generation for an everlasting covenant. So Eve is going to be the mother of all living. This is how they're going to live through Abraham, through this covenant, this everlasting covenant through Abraham. To be a God unto you and to your seed after you. So anybody who's going to live forever needs to live forever inside Abraham. And so this is how the mother of all living, how all those living will actually be redeemed. It cascades then from Abraham down to Israel. And that everlasting covenant is now with Israel. But unfortunately, Israel fails. And God revealed the failure of Israel to Moses. So God is not surprised. God is not caught off guard that Israel failed. Look at Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. And verse 25. The Lord shall cause you to be smitten before your enemies. So when you fail, this is what's going to happen. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. So they were to be holy people in the holy land, but because of their rebellion, they'd be taken out of the land and scattered all over the earth. The Lord shall bring you, verse 36, The Lord shall bring you and your king, which you shall set over you, unto a nation neither you nor your fathers have known, and there shall you serve other gods, wood and stone. So this is, this is not maybe. This is, this is God saying to Adam, in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And now God is saying to Israel, in the day you disobey me, here's what's going to happen. So let's, let's enter this agreement, and if you obey me, you absolutely will enjoy these blessings. But if you disobey me, mark my word, this is going to happen to you. So it's important for us to understand this. God doesn't joke. When he says something, he means it. So this is what's going to happen. And there, in these lands, shall you serve other gods, wood and stone. And you shall become an astonishment. So Israel is to become an astonishment, a proverb and a byword. So the people are like, you don't want to be like Israel. Look at them. Among all the nations where the Lord shall lead you. Now, as clear as God is of Israel's rebellion and what's going to happen, God also, unlike what the Quran teaches, that because they broke the Sabbath, God turned them into apes and pigs, the Bible says something totally different. It says these people are going to rebel. And Moses foresaw this. He's about to die. They're about to go into the promised land. And Moses says you're going to rebel. But look what else he says. Deuteronomy 30. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, And it shall come to pass, when all these things, he doesn't say if, it shall come to pass if all these things, and it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon you, the blessing and the curse. So he wasn't confused. He's like, okay, yeah, you will enjoy the blessing, but it's not going to last. The curse is going to come, come upon you. So it sounded like when you're reading Deuteronomy, it sounds like either or. Are they going to go this way or are they going to go that way? Moses says, is saying, you're going to go both ways. You're going to enjoy the blessing, but then you're going to fail. And you're going to be cursed as well. Which I have set before you 
and you shall call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So after the blessing comes upon you, you're going to remember it now when you're in these different nations, and you shall return unto the Lord your God, and you shall obey his voice according to all that I command you this day, you and your children, and you're going to do it with all your heart and with all your soul. So Moses is saying you're going to go through a process of rebellion, and you are going to be spanked so hard for that rebellion that the repentance is going to be complete. There's going to be a wholehearted repentance, and you're going to come back to God, and you're going to fulfill the role that he set aside for you, but you're going to fulfill it with your whole heart when you see how God treats, follows this process faithfully. So you're going to come, he says, you will obey his voice according to all that I command you this day, you and your children, and you're going to do it with all your heart and with all your soul. Moses sees the new covenant. The old covenant is going to fail. Moses sees there's going to be a new covenant where they'll do this with all their heart and all their, all their soul. That then the Lord your God will turn your captivity. You're going to be taken slaves. God is going to free you, and he's going to have compassion upon you. So this is after they've been freed from Egypt. M- Moses is saying you're going to be enslaved again. But this time God is going to free you. He's going to have compassion on, on you, and he will return and gather you from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. So we're beginning to see now why Christ would not lift the curse, why he separated Jew from Jew, because he doesn't joke with his word. He said, this is what's going to happen to you. And until this happens, he's not going to reverse it. So this is going to happen, and then he's going to redeem them. Verse 4. If any of yours be driven out unto the outmost parts of heaven, from there... Will the Lord your God gather you? So they have to be driven there first for God to be able to gather them. And when we read in Matthew 24, when he returns, he says he's going to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. Well, they have to be scattered to the four corners of the earth first. So this is why God makes sure that everything he says happens exactly as he said it would happen. Verse 5. Well, verse 4. From there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there will he fetch you. Matthew 24 shows us that. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. So you're going to be in the land, you're going to be taken away, and then he's going to bring you back. And you shall possess it. This this is how it ends. You will possess this land. And he will do you good and multiply you above your fathers. So this is the ultimate will of God, that he will do them good, but he's got to take them through a process where they repent wholeheartedly. And they don't serve him as a hypocrite. They serve him with their whole heart. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. This is the new covenant. They will have the Holy Spirit. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses upon your enemies and on them that hate you, which persecuted you. So first these enemies are raised up to destroy these people. Then God acts to save them and puts all these curses on the enemies. And you shall return and obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments which I command you this day. So this speaks then of enemies. That these people have to have enemies. So God has that in mind as well. Let's go to Genesis 10 to see how God does this. 
in Genesis 10 and verse 22, we see this. This is after the flood and Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the children of Noah, their, their genealogy is recorded. And here in verse 22, the children of Shem, Elam, and Asher, and Arphaxad, and Lud, and Aram. So just notice this in verse 22, that Asher is of the line of Shem. Shem is the godly line, and Asher comes out of that line. So it's a little detail that Moses gives us that he wants us to know that Asher comes from Shem. But the covenant is not with all of Shem's children. And Asher is not of the covenant. So when we go to Genesis 7 now, it doesn't matter that you're from the line of Shem. If you're not in the covenant people of the Hebrews, then you're, you're other, you're Gentile. So Genesis 10 and verse 7, he recounts the sons of Ham and the sons of Cush. The sons of Cush are Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Ramah and Sabteca and the sons of Ramah, Sheba and Dedan. These are the nations. Moses is showing us the nations that God is going to use to crush his people, to punish his people. And so in verse 8 now, Cush begat Nimrod. And he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter, and the better translation is against the Lord. He was an enemy of God. He was a villain. He was a mighty hunter against the Lord, which means he's hunting human beings. Therefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter against the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom, so he's now building out his kingdom. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So this is the root. This is Babylon. This is, so, so, Jesus has a plan to make Jerusalem the capital of the world. That the whole world will be modeled after Jerusalem. Satan is not creative. Satan is an imitator. So Satan's plan is to have a capital of the world. And that capital is Babylon. So Nimrod is to Babylon what Christ is to Jerusalem. And so Christ, uh, Satan wants everybody to look to Babylon and to look to Nimrod. And so the beginning of his kingdom, it starts in Babel, goes to Erech and Akhed and Kelna in the land of Shinar. So Moses is very specific about where this is. Notice this, though, in verse 11. Out of that land went forth Asher. So Asher, even though he's from the line, the line of Shem, he learns the skills of empire building from Nimrod. And he sees it firsthand in Babylon, and he leaves Babylon, so out of that land went forth Asher, and he built Nineveh, and the city of Rehoboth and Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, the same as a great city. So he got it. He understood how to do this. And this is the beginning of the Assyrian Empire. So these two empires, first Egypt subjugates God's people, and now we see the beginning of the next two, the Babylonian Empire and the Assyrian Empire. And they're built after the knowledge of Nimrod. And in verse 13, we see Mizraim, which is Egypt. So Egypt was here at this time as well. And he learned the Babylonian system and how to subjugate men from Nimrod. So all of these nations, Moses is mentioning them. And they're going to come up later in the prophecies. That Isaiah is going to say, these are the nations 
that God is going to use as a sword to punish his people. So when God is cursing Israel, the, the mechanism for that curse is already in play. Let's go to Isaiah 11. So we have to go from Genesis to Revelation and keep the thread. This is not a scattered book. This book is consistent. And everything starts in Genesis and it concludes in Revelation. And, and then I would say everything has to go through Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah is like a mini Bible. So everything from Genesis to Revelation, it's in Isaiah. And then we know that Christ came and he said, you'll be hated of all nations. Well, these are the nations. These are the tribes. And he says that Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies full of this perpetual hatred. It's all here. In Isaiah 11, in verse 11, Isaiah sees what Moses saw. So Moses says, this is going to happen, but then God is going to redeem you. And in verse 11, Isaiah says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time. The first time was Egypt and Pharaoh, but there's going to be a second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left. So there's going to be this incredible excuse me, hatred upon them. They're going to be slaughtered, but there's going to be a remnant that's left. And God is going to scatter them, uh, collect them from where? From Assyria, from Mizraim, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, one of the descendants of uh, Shem, and from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. All these lands, all these nations were mentioned in Genesis. That God put it in motion, the sword, that's going to punish his people. And then he's going to gather them. So in the end time, we can call these nations different things. So Elam, I believe today, uh, this is part of what we call Iran. Uh, Shinar is what we call Iraq. Cush is what we call Ethiopia. Pathros and Egypt are still, well, Pathros is northern, north, upper Egypt and Egypt. Uh, Assyria is Syria, Iraq, and Turkey, that part of the land. We can call them whatever we want. These are the people. These are the nations that God is going to use, that they're going to take Israel captive, and God is going to retrieve them from these lands. And it all goes back to Genesis. And this is why God says in Isaiah, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, that which is not yet done, saying, my plans will stand. He's not a God of abrogation. Everything he says happens exactly as he says it. And that's what's happening. So all this hatred that we're seeing now, anti-Semitism is on the rise. It's to fulfill all of this. This is what's happening. In Isaiah chapter 6, let's see this curse that's on these people that ultimately will turn into a great blessing. But they have to have the curse first because God is not joking. If God was a joker, he would be an unrighteous God. And you see unrighteous parents. I think all of us have been who are parents. We can declare we are unrighteous parents. Because we say, Johnny, don't do that. If you do that, you'll get a spanking. Johnny, I'm counting to ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine point one? Nine point two? 
9.25, and we quite never get to 10. And then Johnny learns, you don't mean what you say. Well, God is not a parent like that. God means what he says. And so this is why, when the multitude followed him, he said, disciples, come over here. I'll tell you what's going on. Because in you, I'm going to activate the plan to redeem them. But they have to be cursed first. Why? Because I said to Adam, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And I said to them, in the day you disobey me, these curses will come upon you. So these curses will come upon them. But then I promised Moses, and I promised Abraham, I will redeem them. And so these disciples, this church that I'm setting up, this is the mechanism that ultimately I'll use to save them. Isaiah 6, verse 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? So this is Isaiah's calling to ministry. He heard, he heard the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? That is Christ and the Father. So he heard this voice saying, Who shall I send and who will go for us? So I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Good. Go. This is his, this is his prophethood. So, Isaiah, you're going to be a prophet for me. You're going to be a messenger. Here's the plan. Go and tell this people, hear you indeed, but understand not. And see you indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. And then I would be an unrighteous God. Because I said, <laughs> when you do these things, this is what's going to happen. And not only did they break God's commandment, they broke it with, with joy, with, with intensity. They were just out of their way breaking God's commandments. And God became furious with them. And now he has to fulfill the agreement that he entered into with them. And so it would be premature for them to convert. And this is what Christ is quoting. Then, this is what Christ didn't quote, but is important. Isaiah asks, then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant. Why? Because that's what I said would happen. So until this happens, they have to remain in this state of blindness. Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And that's what, exactly what Christ said when he came. That your house is left to you desolate. And the abomination of desolation will be set up. And the Lord has removed men far away. This is the curse in Deuteronomy. And there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Then they can be converted. And when they are, when they've had this spanking, they're going to convert with their whole heart. And when they're resurrected, they're going to convert with their whole heart. And they're going to realize that everything that God said happened exactly as God said it. Look at Zechariah 10. Zechariah 10. To see that there is an end. That this desolation isn't an everlasting desolation. It's a necessary desolation. But then God will turn. 
And in Zechariah 10 and verse 6, God says, And I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them again to, the, to place them, for I have mercy upon them. This is exactly what Moses said. And they shall be as though I had not cast them off. So when Christ said, leave them, I'm giving you to understand the mysteries. They're under a curse. At the same time, Christ is seeing beyond the curse. And he's seeing the time when they will be set up as his people. And he says here through Zechariah that they shall be as though I had not cast them off. That will be forgotten. That this intense period of punishment that they have to go through. Why? For I am the Lord, their God, and I will hear them. In chapter 12 of Zechariah, verse 2, he says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. So all the people are going to agree that we need to destroy Jerusalem. The Jews have no right to be there. It's a Palestinian land, it's there, so they're going to put all these armies there to take Jerusalem. And God says, behold, I, will make, I personally will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. And when we read all the people, we should read the nations. The very nations that Moses identified in Genesis. He's going to make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to these nations. When they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. Again, these are the nations. All that burden themselves with it. So everybody says, you know, Jerusalem is mine. We, Jerusalem belongs to us. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces. Don't mess with God. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces. Though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. No one can stop God from doing his will. And his will is to have his people in Jerusalem. So even if all the nations, and he tells us, will be hated of all nations because they have an agenda. So if they all agree to this agenda that Jerusalem belongs to them, God says it doesn't matter. Though all the people of the earth be gathered against it, he's going to cut them all in pieces. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He that is feeble among them, so a Jew that doesn't have any strength, he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David. And the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So these nations rise up under Satan's inspiration, and they destroy Jerusalem and the Jews but Satan doesn't realize he's a puppet and they're all puppets because God has to punish his people because they broke the covenant but once they're punished all these curses as Moses wrote all these curses will then be on the head of your enemies in chapter 14 of Zechariah In verse 16, he says, And it shall come to pass. This will happen. After all this cataclysm has taken place, all of this chaos and disruption, and Zechariah writes, It shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations, 
So there's going to be a remnant left of Judah, and God is going to give them the upper hand. And then they're going to crush all these nations, and many of them are going to be slaughtered. But of those that are left, of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, they will absolutely go up from year to year to worship the king. There will be a wholehearted repentance. Whatever God they were serving, they're going to realize that God was the devil. And they're going to repent. And they're going to worship the God, the king, Yahweh. So all these people who hated the Jews are now going to worship the God of the Jews. They'll even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And Zechariah highlights specifically the Feast of Tabernacles because of its symbolism of the millennium and how all nations will be invited to worship God during the millennium. And it shall be that whoever is still filled with so much hatred and hostility against the Jews that they refuse, they just can't bring themselves to keep the feast. It shall be that whoever will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. They will suffer a slow, agonizing death through famine. God isn't joking. He will be established in Jerusalem. The Jews will be established in Jerusalem as his people along with Israel. And the whole world will acknowledge that he's the God of Israel. In verse 18, we get a sense now of who might resist keeping the feast. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, then on them will be the plague. Now, I wonder, what religion do Egyptians have today that would cause them to hate the Jews? And can't bring themselves to worship with the Jews. Whatever that is, it's so intense and it's so ingra- the hatred is so ingrained in them that they can't bring themselves. They'd rather suffer famine. Then on top of the famine, well, they're going to get the plague. God isn't joking. There shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that does not come to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt, and not just Egypt, but of all the nations that share in that ideology, that they refuse to come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and pots, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like bowls before the altar. So there's a whole religious symbolism that will be set up. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and see therein. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. So obviously the Canaanite will be in there. But God is going to bring it to an end. So these nations from Genesis are used by God to punish his people, but then he puts an end to it and punishes them. And this is from the very beginning, that that these people that God has selected would be a holy nation. It'd be a kingdom of priests. And God is saying, this is exactly what's going to happen. You will be a kingdom of priests. And this is what Satan has been trying to oppose and try to set up Babylon as the nation that 
everybody, uh, as, as the system that everybody looks to and patterns their cities and nations after. And the time is coming when the, the ultimate plan that Satan is trying to preempt is that Jerusalem will be the system and the pattern of all nations. You know, when you fly, Air Canada has zones, how you board. Zone 1, Zone 2, Zone 5. So they'll call Zone 1 first. And I saw a lady get up to go in Zone 1. And she got to the counter. And I said, you're Zone 5. Go and sit down. She was with a woman who was like frustrated with her. Go and sit down. We will call you when it's your turn. Zone 1 first. Judah is in Zone 1. And God is dealing with Judah first. The only difference is when Zone 1 gets on the plane and they get in their business class and they make themselves comfortable, then everybody else has to pass and like, wow, you're so lucky to be in Zone 1. I'm going to the back near the toilets. This is not the way God is doing it. When Zone 1 gets on, Zone 1 is getting on so that they can serve Zone 2 and Zone 3 and Zone 4. So Zone 1, get on the plane, get trained, so that when the other zones come on, you can serve them. And that's what God is doing. That Judah is in zone one, so that Judah can be a kingdom of priests to the rest of the nations. Isaiah 25. This homicidal hatred for Judah which Moses described as a perpetual hatred he said that these nations back in his day he said these nations will hate you perpetually it's a perpetual hatred so there's always going to be some ideology or system that causes these nations to hate God's people and here in Isaiah 25 and verse 7 Isaiah writes and he sees the time when God will destroy in this mountain, the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. So this hatred that these nations have, they're being deceived by the devil. And a time is coming that God is going to lift this veil and they're going to realize these are God's people. These are God's priests. In Isaiah 62... In Isaiah 62, and beginning in verse 1, God says, For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. So God has been quiet, but he's bursting. And because of what's happening to Zion, he's had it. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest. Until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness. And the salvation thereof as a lamp that burns. So salvation comes out of Jerusalem. Salvation comes out of the Jews. And God will not rest until this happens. And the Gentiles, that is the nations, shall see your righteousness. So they're going to have their own righteousness and God is going to crush it. And the, the Gentiles are going to acknowledge that righteousness is in Judah. The Gentile, God will not rest until the Gentiles see 
that your righteousness and, and, and all your kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. So this is the plan of God. He, this is what he's going to do. But first they have to be punished. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. They're going to be a nation, a kingdom of priests. And you shall no more be termed forsaken. So that's what they're going to be called. The Jews are forsaken. They have no God. Look how God hates them. They wouldn't be suffering like this if they had a God. But that's going to stop. You won't be called forsaken anymore. Neither shall your land any more be termed desolate. So we're going to look at this land and say, look how desolate it is. God's going to say, that's not going to happen anymore. But you shall be called Hephziba and your land Beulah. For the Lord delights in you, so one means delight, and your land shall be married. The other means married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I have set watchmen upon your walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. You that make mention of the Lord, of, of the Lord keep not silence. So we who know what this is, we cannot be silent. And give him no rest until he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. So this is now we're shifting to what does this mean to us in the church? So we're in the church. What does all this mean? This focus that God has on Jerusalem. This focus that God has on the Jew. Well, we're not Jews. Most of us are Gentiles grafted in. Even those of us who are Israelites were considered Gentiles to God because God divorced the ten nations. And we have to be grafted in through Judah. So what does this mean to us? Well, he, gets, he hints at it here. He says in verse 6, You that make mention of the Lord. Who is it that knows the Lord? You that make mention of the Lord. Don't keep silence. You preach this gospel. And give him no rest until he establishes and until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. So it means that if we truly are followers of Christ, Jerusalem is top of mind for us. This is our, this is our highest priority, that Jerusalem be established in the earth. And we must not give him rest until he does that. Because he's the God of Israel and he'll be glorified in Israel. So let's just wrap up as we consider what this means to us in the church. We are first fruits. Agreed? Does it make sense for the focus to be on the first fruits harvest? The first fruits harvest was just an indication that there would be a fall harvest. That if God accepts the first fruits harvest, we're going to have abundance in the fall. So the first fruits always pointed to the bigger harvest. But somehow we've got the impression that the first fruits is all there is. Well, we're the first fruits, we're here, job done. No. He called these 12 disciples apart and gave them the mysteries. He's recruiting them early to help with the process of redemption. These people have to be punished, but I'm going to redeem them and set them up in the earth to redeem the rest of mankind. In Isaiah 30, 
in Isaiah 30 and in verse 19, he says, For the people, that is, his people, they shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. In other words, as much as Satan is trying to avoid this, as much as Satan is trying to destroy this plan, God is saying, you know what? My people, they're going to dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. And you shall weep no more. So they have to be punished, but God is going to wipe away all tears. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious unto you at the voice of your cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer you. So somebody needs to encourage God's people that, look, you have to be punished, but he's going to be gracious. Now notice verse 20. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not your teachers be removed into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. So God pulls out a set early, trains them, teaches us, gives us the mysteries so that we can be used to teach his people. So we have to be on God's agenda. God doesn't have this plan to just, oh, I'll save everybody. There are zones, each in his own order. And the first order of business on the earth is God has to establish his people as the head nation. So the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel will be the head nation. Jerusalem will be the capital of the earth. And the whole earth will look to Jerusalem and will look to these people. We are no longer human. As first fruits, we've been born into God's family, and we're overseeing this human operation. We have to understand what a blessing it is to be first fruits. There's this journey that mankind has to go on, and it has to be led by the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Israel. But it's, it's a long journey, and then there's all through the millennium. They have to go all through this teaching through the millennium, and at the end of the millennium, there's going to be massive failure. But finally, at the end of this whole process, Human beings will be born into God's family. But first fruits, we're born into God's family here. Christ returns, we're born into his family. And we now oversee this human operation for over a thousand years, where many will not make it. But we're in the family. And our focus is God's focus. First on Judah. And Israel. And then through Judah and Israel, the rest of the world. He says, verse 21, Your ears shall hear a word behind you. Who's saying this to them? We are. Because our focus is God's focus. These people have to be established as the head nation. Your ears will hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. This is, this is not, uh, this is not, oh, human beings, all mankind, you'll hear this word. This is Judah. Judah, your ears will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk you in it. Because this has to be the head nation. This is the way, walk you in it. When you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left. So, as we wrap up here, let's look at two more scriptures. One is Psalm 137.
Psalm 137 and verse 5. I love this scripture. David writes, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her craft. In other words, he's saying, let me be impoverished. Whatever I do to make a living, if I forget Jerusalem, let me be cursed. And let me be impoverished. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. And this is the question for us as first fruits. What is our chief joy? And do we prefer Jerusalem above our chief joy? Do we get it? Do we understand what God is doing on the earth? And what it means when Jerusalem, instead of Babylon, is the capital city of the earth? And do we know what God is doing? There's a saying, there are those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and those who wonder, what happened? God makes things happen. He declares it, and then he makes it happen. We wait upon the Lord. We're, we understand When we turn on the news, we understand what's happening because we're watching what's happening. And everyone else... They're just going to wonder, what happened? We thought we had the upper hand. We thought things were going our way. And we just sat back and said, no, the Lord will act. And every word he's spoken will come to pass. Jerusalem must be our chief joy. We have to get it. We have to understand what God is doing. Let's conclude in Luke 14. Luke 14, and we'll break in at verse 25, where again we see great multitudes following Christ. We saw that already, great multitudes, and he wasn't interested. He, he had no interest in teaching them, because he's going to fulfill his word. But here in verse 25, we have great multitudes again. There went great multitudes with him, and he turned and he said unto them, I'm not interested. So they're all following him, and he turns and he says, I'm not interested. He says, if any man come to me, so there they all, they all follow him. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yes, and his own life also, it's impossible. He cannot be my disciple. So we understand hate doesn't mean hate. It means in terms of comparison. There's no priority. There's no comparison. Christ is such a priority that anything else... That's why, that's why David said, May I be cursed if Jerusalem is not above my chief joy. David understood. So there's nothing that will separate us from the love of God and our love for Him and an understanding of what He's doing, even our own life. That's how we can be his disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So all who desire to live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. If we're not willing to be persecuted, we cannot be his disciple. So he's not looking for big numbers. He's looking for commitment. He's looking for real, heartfelt commitment. So he, now he explains, like, so all of you are here, you want to follow me, back off. Back away. You cannot be my disciple. 
unless you understand what you're doing. That I must be number one in your life, and whatever is number two is the distant number two. Here's why. Let me explain. Put, he says here, put yourself in my shoes. He says, for which of you, intending to build a tower, doesn't sit down first and count the cost, whether he has sufficient to build it, lest happily, after he has laid the foundation and he's not able to finish it, all that behold him begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So he's saying, look, put yourself in my shoes. If you were going to build something, wouldn't you make sure that you had the resources to finish it first? Lest you start, you lay the foundation, and then you run out of resources. And everybody is watching and sees, hey, this guy began to build a tower. He had this big dream. It was going to be this huge tower, and he didn't even finish. I'm not doing that. I've already counted the cost, and I'm going to build this tower, and I know how many people I need to build this tower. This is Gideon's army. I don't need 20,000. I need 300. But they've got to be really committed. Then he says here, verse 31, Or what king going to make war against another king? So when he's coming, he's coming to crush the kingdoms of this world and Satan. So if you were a king and you were going to go to war against another king, wouldn't you sit down first and consider whether you're able with 10,000 to meet him that comes against you with 20,000. So there's an overwhelming force that's going to come against you as a king. You only have 10,000 soldiers. Wouldn't you sit down first, before you go into battle, to say, can I do this? And if I can't, he says here, or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an embassy and desires conditions of peace. So, I'm not desiring conditions of peace. I've already calculated what I'm doing. And I don't need a big army. I need a committed army. That's why you've got to be willing to take up your cross. You've got to have me as your highest priority. You have to understand what I'm doing with Jerusalem. And you have to be committed to my agenda. Then you can be my disciple. And we're going to pull this off. It doesn't matter how much the enemy brings against us. He says, so likewise... Whosoever he be of you, that forsakes not all he has, he cannot be my disciple. This is it. This is the decision that we must make. That Jerusalem is our chief joy. And we will forsake everything for God. Whatever he puts in our path, so be it. Because we understand that he's a God that means what he says. And everything he says is going to unfold exactly as he says. And so he ends by saying, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? So we need to understand, brethren, and, and uh, I appreciate Dylan in his um, scripture reading, showed how salvation is to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. There's an order of operations. There's an order of priority. And the priority that God has is to us. It says in Luke 1 that his name is Jesus, God saves, and he's come to save his people. He doesn't come to save the world. He come to save his people and establish his people as the head nation and to use those people to save the rest of the world. So this is what he means when he says, you don't understand what you're talking about because salvation comes out of the Jews. 
This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.